Not long ago, I had a conversation with a congregation member about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was reflecting on the worldwide impact of the COVID-19 virus and wondering if this was a sign of the imminent return of our Savior. More recently, if you've followed the news, you will have taken note of the social unrest precipitated by the death of George Floyd in the United States under the knee of a police officer on May 25th. The Black Lives Matter movement has seized on this. And they've been doing more than just calling for justice. They have been calling for a radical change of the social order. Open dialogue about the nature of the problems in society and what kind of solutions may be best are not being fostered in a calm and collected way. Instead, honest discussion is being suppressed in favor of certain scripted viewpoints. In all the activism, we hear calls for a completely different kind of society even one without police officers to uphold law and order. What is going on? People are being manipulated. There's a lot of deception going on and a lot of people willing to be deceived. It's getting harder and harder to trust the news media to give objective, unbiased information. Journalists have combined forces with agitators and activists. Video clips are edited to give a skewed picture of various events. Outrage is being cultivated and channeled in predetermined directions. And to this day, months later, it continues. And what should we think of this? Scripture should be our guide. It teaches us that alarming developments in the world are to be expected. What people read or when they hear the news, they sometimes wonder, is, is everyone going crazy or, or what? You hear politicians and news commentators making pronouncements that make you shake your head. What are they thinking? It may seem like millions of people are losing their minds. And take care that the same doesn't happen to you. It's easy to be sucked along in the currents running through society. And the only way to resist this consistently is to hold on to the unwavering standard of the Word of God. It teaches us about God himself and how to live as his children in this world. It teaches us to understand the basic flow of human history and the underlying divide between those who believe in God and those who choose not to. It teaches us to look forward to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in glory. And that will signal the end of time as we know it 
and the renewal of God's creation. And so we come to the theme for this morning, which is also the point for the sermon. Usually you'll hear me having two or three points. This time, it's just one point, one theme, and that is, don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. That's the theme. The Apostle Paul is teaching us to discern what's going on in society and to to step back and look at the bigger picture. And the members of the church in Thessalonica had welcomed the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior of sinners. And they had embraced Paul's teaching, repenting of their sins and learning to live as followers of Jesus Christ. They understood their calling to love God and to show this by living to please Him, by leading holy lives, while looking forward to being with Jesus Christ forever. And Paul encourages them in his first letter by writing about how the news of their faith in God has become known to people far away from their city. And he uses this fact to remind them in 1 Thessalonians 1, the verses 9 to 10, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They now live as believers who have an eternal future with God. And Paul wants them to continue faithfully in their lives as believers and in their expectation of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. Probably not long after writing that first letter, the apostle decides to write to this congregation again. They need comfort and encouragement in the face of persecution. Their afflictions are the result of injustice. But God will not forget what is happening. The time will come, writes Paul, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Justice will be done. Meanwhile, those believers evidently also need further instruction about the second coming of Jesus Christ in his glory. As we can see in verse 2 of our text, certain members of the congregation were claiming that the day of the Lord has come. And other church members were gullible enough to believe that even though it conflicted with what Paul had previously taught them. So he wants to set the record straight. The basic thrust of what Paul is saying in our text is that you shouldn't believe everything you hear or read. Be discerning. Hang on to what you already know to be true. Remembering and reflecting on that can help you to be more discerning. Then you will not be so quickly 
shaken in mind or alarmed, as the apostle puts it in verse 2. And the expression shaken in mind refers to a severe disturbance in your thinking, as if you're being shaken back and forth like a reed in the wind or, or because of an earthquake and are so disoriented that you don't know what to think. And being confused can result in a sense of alarm. And the apostle wants to prevent this in his readers, and so he reassures them. They should pay no attention to any message by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. It seems that Paul has not been informed what the origin is of the idea that the Lord has returned. In any case, he wants to make sure that his readers are not led astray by the suggestion that Paul or any of his companions could be the source. <clears throat> the reference in verse 2 to a spirit or a spoken word or a letter has generated some discussion among commentators. The consensus seems to be that the source of doctrinal confusion could be from someone claiming to be passing on a prophetic message, something revealed by the Holy Spirit. Another possibility is that confusion among the Thessalonians could have arisen because of a letter said to be from Paul. And whatever the case may be, none of this should carry any weight since it contradicts the apostolic teaching they have already heard. The congregation in Thessalonica should simply hold on to the truths known to them. So, when will our Lord Jesus Christ return? Is it possible that the day of his coming has already begun? And the Apostle Paul explains that this is not the case. They shouldn't believe any announcement to the effect that the day has already come. First, there will be the rebellion. And note that Paul doesn't speak in a, a vague, general way about a rebellion. He's talking about something specific and widespread. The Greek word that Paul uses is expressed in the English term apostasy. It involves turning people turning their backs on God and on his claim on their lives, denying his sovereignty, denying his kingship. They reject his law, wanting to do things their own way. And their abandonment of the faith also involves turning against Jesus, the promised Messiah. Whoever shows hatred toward Jesus Christ will also be quick to persecute his followers. As Jesus put it in John 15, the verses 18 to 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Rebellion against God goes together with lawlessness. Paul speaks of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction being revealed. That's in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3. 
Throughout the centuries since the time our text was written, antichrists have arisen, people who have targeted the church of Jesus Christ. The world will hate followers of Jesus Christ, but the worst enemies of the church can come from within the church. It's not surprising, therefore, that people have tried to identify this man of lawlessness as being a religious or political leader who has become an enemy of the church. Especially at the time of the Reformation, back in the 16th century, people pointed to the Pope. He not only embodied false doctrine, but also took an active role in using the power of the state to persecute believers. It's not hard to see how people could therefore conclude that the Pope was the Antichrist. And Paul speaks of this man of lawlessness as taking a prominent position in the temple of God. And doesn't the Pope regard himself as the earthly head of the church? The question is, however, whether all the things that Paul says concerning this man of lawlessness can consistently be applied to the Pope. After all, the description given in verse 4 speaks of this person as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship and that he will be proclaiming himself to be God. This person will call people to turn away from whatever God or object that they may worship to show absolute allegiance to himself. Paul is writing about the coming of the Antichrist. And his appearance on the stage of history will amount to a revelation of tremendous power. Power displayed throughout this world. And it will form a contrast to the expected revelation of Jesus Christ in his majesty. Paul describes the man of lawlessness taking his seat in the temple of God. One commentator points to the stories of Antiochus and Pompey, who both entered the Jewish temple, and suggests that what Paul is saying is to be taken metaphorically, means like a word picture, of the totalitarian claims of the rebel. In other words, to fit the bill of being the man of lawlessness, it would be sufficient for this person simply to strive to occupy the place of honor in the church and in the world that only comes to God. He will claim the right to tell people what to believe and how to live. And Paul goes on to remind his readers that he has already told them about these things. The scene is set for this to happen. As he puts it in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The signs of the coming great rebellion against God were already there in his day. Antichrists have been arising in history since the time of the apostles. Think of 1 John 2 verse 18 where The apostle writes, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. 
The impression that we get from our text is that although many antichrists have already come, there will be one who will be more awe-inspiring than any of the others. The day is closer now than ever before, but it hasn't come yet. Why not? He is being restrained until the time is ripe for his appearance. What or who is restraining the Antichrist from appearing? Although ultimately God is in control, he makes use of instruments. And Paul makes it clear that he's not talking about God himself directly restraining this Antichrist. In verse 7, he writes about the time when he who restrains, that is the mystery of lawlessness, will do so until he is out of the way. And what Paul means is that the time will come when the appearing of this Antichrist will no longer be blocked. Whoever or whatever prevented this from happening will be taken out of the picture. That will be when this lawless one is revealed. Commentators have offered various explanations about what is keeping the lawless one from appearing. Some have pointed to the system of law and order in the Roman Empire of Paul's day. Although there was oppression, various rules and regulations also worked out in favor of Christians. The apostle benefited from that himself in various ways as a Roman citizen. More broadly, however, one can point to systems of law and order throughout the history of the world as providing some measure of protection for Christians. Paul explains in Romans 13 that there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. They've been put in place by God to restrain the forces of wickedness and to punish wrongdoers. When police forces, as guardians of law and order, are set aside or deprived of their authority, anarchy is the result. Chaos then erupts, and you see lawlessness instead of civilized behavior. Especially in the United States, we have recently been seeing deliberate attacks on the social order. And looking at the Canadian scene, things seem to be calmer. Let's count our blessings, but not take them for granted. Things can deteriorate in our country too. When people are not open to being guided by the Word and Spirit of God, they are susceptible to be influenced by other spirits. Haven't we seen a gradual shift in morals in our society during the past decades? Views concerning sex, marriage, abortion, and euthanasia have changed. And that's a reflection of a change in people's beliefs and values. Without the unwavering standard of the Word of God, they will tend to go along with prevailing trends set by influential people in society. And Paul makes it clear in verse 11 of our text that people are susceptible to delusions. 
They're easily fooled. They're easily led astray. And as a result of God's righteous judgment, they can be, believe lies that will be detrimental to themselves, their countries, and even have a negative impact on the world. Think of the rise of communism in the early 20th century. The seed for this was sown with the publication of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, written by Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels. Workers of the world unite. That was a key slogan. What was the objective? Overthrow those who own shops and factories. Get rid of all private property and thereby eliminate all distinctions between classes of people. Let the government take total control over everything and manage all the needs of society. Then everything will be great. The first communist government was established in Russia in 1917. Within the space of decades, communism spread throughout Eastern Europe into Asia and eventually also to countries in Africa and South America. And the social changes led to the deaths of millions of people. It turned out that abolishing private property removed the incentive of people to work. Instead of leading to prosperity for all, communism led to a lot of poverty. And that's just one example of a delusion promising a glorious future that turned out to be a fiasco. And the results are with us to this day. Delusions will continue and even multiply. In verses 9 to 10 of our text, the Apostle Paul explains that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Things will eventually come to a climax. This coming Antichrist will be amazing. People will be astounded by what they see. However, it will amount to fakery instead of being a demonstration of truly divine power. Satan is a master of imitation. He can make people think they're being confronted with something that is truly from God, but it isn't. Don't be impressed or intimidated by what appears to be of divine origin if it is linked with ungodly behavior. Any form of lawlessness is of the devil. And when the lawless one appears, many will be deceived. How will this be possible? It will be their own fault. Paul writes in verse 10 that they will believe what is false because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The only ones who will be fooled will be those who want to be fooled. Failing to love the truth, they will end up embracing lies and perish. 
That will be how God punishes them. Paul portrays this grim reality in the final verses of our text. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And now here's a question to think about. Does this make God the author of sin? Not at all. What Paul is saying is that God is in control of all things. He can rein in or unleash forces of wickedness in this world. Satan cannot do as he pleases. He can only operate within the limits set by God himself. And nevertheless, Satan and all those who follow him will be held responsible for what they do. They are not puppets. And we can find an illustration of what Paul is getting at by turning to Romans 1. And we've looked at that. It was a scripture reading before I read the text. I remember how verse 18 of that chapter began, where we read about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The truth, as it were, is coming up at them, but they're holding it down, they're holding it back, they're resisting it. The apostle writes that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, leaving people without excuse. The Bible teaches us that God is the creator of heaven and earth. So many things and so many living beings in the world testify to his intelligence and creativity. And nevertheless, people in Paul's day, as well as now, have chosen to reject this. They persistently refuse to honor God or give thanks to him. Millions of people have embraced the teachings of Charles Darwin and believe the theory of evolution. The impact in scientific circles of this theory has even led many Christians to conclude that we need to reinterpret the teachings of Scripture to accommodate the idea of theistic evolution, meaning that somehow God has used evolution to create the world we see around us. And what happens when people decide to reject what God has revealed concerning himself and his work in this world? Their thinking becomes futile and their hearts are darkened. Romans 1 verse 21. The Apostle Paul writes about people claiming to be wise who become fools and end up worshiping things of this creation instead of God himself. Romans 1 verse 22 to 23. The Bible teaches us that God created distinct human beings, male and female. And science confirms that there are genetic differences between males and females. And nevertheless, discussions during the past years in society about distinctions between sex and gender and gender identity and gender fluidity have led to what? To a lot of confusion. 
We don't need to deny that since the fall into sin, genetic abnormalities can occur. However, it is a delusion to conclude on the basis of abnormalities that biological distinctions have become meaningless. What is going on is that people are trying to justify the further corruption of their thinking. Those who refuse to acknowledge God face the real possibility of being condemned by him to follow the desires of their own hearts. Since they don't want to be accountable to him, he reserves the right to give them up to dishonorable passions. And the outcome is sexual depravity and other kinds of wicked behavior. That same pattern is clear at the end of our text in Thessalonians, which links not believing the truth with having pleasure in unrighteousness. And doesn't this make you think about the world around us today? things seem to be going from bad to worse. And when you think about the coming revelation of the man of lawlessness, you might feel scared. Nevertheless, beloved, don't be discouraged. There is good news in what the Apostle Paul is telling us. Remember that he refers to this man of lawlessness in verse 3 of our text as the son of destruction. What does that mean? It means that while it may be true that he will bring destruction with him, he himself will ultimately be destroyed. There are many delusions, many lies nowadays. We see lawlessness and anarchy in society. What comfort is there for us in the face of such developments? It's the comfort of knowing that we have Jesus Christ as our Savior. He has come to set us free from all the power of the devil. He teaches us a new way of life and promises a glorious future for all who believe in him. In verse 8, the apostle assures us that the Lord Jesus will kill the lawless one with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. No matter how spectacular the appearance of this lawless one may be, his doom is certain. Our Savior is powerful enough to speak words that will lead to the complete destruction of all the power of the devil and the forces aligned with him. Nothing will be left of the power of the Antichrist when the real Christ appears in his glory. So don't be deceived. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Are you ready for that day? He has said concerning himself in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
He is the only one who restores people to fellowship with God. He can keep us safe from the deceptive power of the devil who is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus Christ guarantees a truly glorious future to his people, one that extends beyond this life. Rejoice in him and live for him with thankful hearts for the salvation he brings to us. That's the way of truth in a world full of deception. That's the way of life everlasting. Amen. Let's now sing in response to the ministry of the word, hymn 67, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. <laughs>